What is up, my friend? Welcome to episode 138 of the Anthony Johnny Mix podcast. Today, I'm bringing on a professional voice actor to share his journey of building a thriving online business, uh, an amazing career. And this episode, it really felt like kind of like it's two homies just like sitting around um, a coffee table, just kind of like chatting it up about life and about business. And today's guest shares some amazing wisdom that I really believe will support you on your journey. So if you're looking for some inspiration or if you've ever felt alone in your entrepreneurial journey, hello, I have, <laughs> then sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Anthony John Amix Podcast, the one and only podcast designed to help you become unstoppable in life and business. My name is Anthony John Amix. My friends call me AJ. And my goal with this podcast is to help you remember who you truly are so you can maintain your center in the chaos, embody your potential, and unlock freedom in your life and business. That being said, let's get into today's show. All right, welcome back. Today's guest is Tim Page. He's a professional voice actor who just absolutely loves what he does, whether it's promos for like a new TV series or narrating some next special or intros for one of the thousands <laughs> or more podcasts that he's produced, um, narrating it like the next audiobook, just like whatever it is with voice acting, like he loves it. His mission is just to do an amazing job, turn it around uh, as quickly as possible, and just like get to the next step in the journey without hassles or headaches. Tim's the go-to guy for brands uh, on the CW, NBC, the UFC, Jimmy Kimball Live, uh, and just a whole, whole bunch more. Now, before I bring Tim onto the show, I want to let you know about my brand new book. It's called Unstoppable Beacon. It's a best-selling book already. Uh, and it's really all about like helping you maintain your center in the chaos, embody your potential and unlock freedom in your life and business. Like, you know how like so many entrepreneurs or just humans in general, like they feel this sense of inescapable pressure. Well, the book teaches them how to convert that stress into uh, fuel, like for their purpose, for their freedom, for their success, whatever that is. So you can get the book today by just going to Unstoppable Beacon. Dot com. Plus, I have some amazing bonus trainings as a surprise for you. It's just my way of saying thank you when you purchase the book. So again, head on over to unstoppablebeacon.com to grab that book today. So with that being said, let's bring Tim onto the show. Tim, welcome to the podcast, brother. Man, thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, dude. I'm excited to chat with you because um, we have a lot of similarities, man. We met back like in person at a podcast movement. I think it was like, was that the first one that they had ever hosted it was in Dallas, right? I want to say it was the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And then since then, you've gone on to like do crazy cool things and voice acting. And dude, how in the world did you go from like musician to working at lead pages to now being like one of the top voice actors in the country? Man, my life swirls around. It's just like there's this thing that I've, I've grabbed onto, which is like as long as you enjoy doing something and the market kind of demonstrates that that's where you need to be. then I just follow that. Mm. Um. It's like I didn't grow up wanting to be a voice actor. I grew up wanting to be a rock star and I lived as much of that life as I could. And then when it came to a point where it was like, um, I don't think this is for me anymore. You know, I want to start a family and settle down and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, I ended up just kind of chilling out, trying a bunch of stuff, figuring out what I wanted to do and came to the world of podcasting because I listened to all the podcasts that were out way back in the day. And I got really caught up on this idea of like, how do you create this life that you want? So, you know, I started being like, well, let's try podcasting, you know, musician recording, all that kind of stuff. It's kind of similar. And I like the sound of my own voice. So I'm like, well, go talking to the void. 
Um, and it's weird because my my life like forked at that point. I had kind of this this dual path that I took where I went down deep into the marketing world and I ended up, you know, like learning a lot about marketing and online marketing and all that and ended up at lead pages uh, from some podcasts that I had and some friends connecting us. And John Lee Dumas introduced me to Clay, the founder and CEO at the time. And he asked me to come on board and start their podcast. And we ended up doing webinars. It was just like this whirlwind of craziness. Well, at the same time, in the podcast world, I had created this awful podcast intro for myself where I tried to like mimic the, the, you know, movie trailer guys. So it was like in a world where one man has a podcast, one man will do some weird stuff. And it was just like this horrible thing, but all these people kept reaching out being like, will you do my intro? Will you do my intro? And so I was like, okay, let's go with that and started a company. And now I've done like 2,300 podcast intros. Um, and that led me down the whole line of voice acting and learning and training. And that's a whole just ball of worms. What did you do for the UFC? Um, I did a bunch of promos. So there's, there's this whole world of, of entertainment marketing and, you know, all the commercials you'll see that's like, you know, tonight on Fox, it's an all new episode of whatever that's called promo. Mm. And, um, so I did a bunch of promos for the UFC. So their upcoming events, you know, I did the, you know, uh, Joanne Calderwood versus Paige Van Zant, UFC 193. And I did a lot of those kind of spots for a while. I haven't done that in a long time now, but it was fun. Nice, nice, man. I, I like watching the UFC. I'm excited about the fight this weekend. Are you going to yeah. watch it? Oh, absolutely. I never miss one. I never <laughs> miss it. I watch every single week. Uh, it's, yeah, it's an addiction. <laughs> well, then what's your thoughts on Connor losing a couple weeks ago? I, I loved it. Um, I never got swept up <laughs> in Connor mania. Yeah. Sure. It just never did it for me. Like, I, you know, he's, he's a good fighter, but I think he's overhyped. I think it's personality. Uh, people love his personality, which is, which is cool. You know, that's interesting, but you know, as a fighter, I don't think he's, you know, I, I don't think he's as great as a lot of people think he is. And I love Dustin Poirier. I, I was bullish on him for a long time. And I, I had a feeling I even bet on it. Actually. I bet on Dustin Poirier, knocking out Conor McGregor in the second round, that specific bet. And I won. I bet five bucks. I bet like a hundred something dollars. So good. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, my brother was, uh, he bet on when uh, when Conor fought Floyd. And I think my brother said, I don't remember the exact bet, but it was like Conor's going to at least land a hundred punches or something. It was like a real weird specific bet. Yeah. hundred bucks and made like 500. It was, he was like, I knew he was going to land at least X amount of punches, you know? Yeah. He was for sure. I mean, he did better than a lot of people thought he was going to do. A lot of people thought he was going to be done, you know, in the early rounds. So to do what he did was really impressive. Yeah. Nice man. Do you, there's talks of him doing a trilogy with Dustin and may it's not an official yet. Do you think the outcome is going to be different if they do solidify that fight in may? I think Connor will now have to train for a lot of stuff that all the other elite fighters have had to train for. You know, I mean, the fact that he seemed flummoxed by calf kicks, yeah. which has been the meta in the UFC for like three years now, totally. I, I think goes to show that he sort of was coasting and now he's celebrity Connor and not fighter Connor. So I think now he's got to go train for that. He's got to learn to deal with those calf kicks because you could go in essentially with the same thing and beat him again. Um, I think it, I think a trilogy fight goes a little bit differently and I think he comes out guns blazing. 
uh, if they do a trilogy, but I still think Dustin takes it. I think okay. Dustin is, I think he's elite in that division. I think, you know, but he's talking about fighting Nate Diaz at 170, which to me, I don't think is a good move. Like I get it. You think you're the crown champion and stuff, but like, dude, go get that belt. Sure. For you sure. Know? I think he's trying to get that cheddar though and put that dough in his pocket. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. No doubt. He just made like what? One, three, you know, yeah. 1.3 million on that fight or something like that was his, was his earnings. And I think pay-per-view points as well. And so you, that's a lot of money. And then Nate Diaz at 170, that's another big money fight for him. Come back, take the belt from whoever ends up with it, which who knows who it's going to be at this point. Yeah, man. Yeah. I found it interesting that Connor wasn't ready for the, the calf kicks as well. And I remember like, you know, because I, I like Connor, I like his philosophy on life a bit. And uh, I found it interesting that he chose his camp. And so it, it started having me question like, well, why the world do you have a quote unquote head coach if you're the one putting together the team? Like, wouldn't you want somebody who's outside of your, your own head to be able to give you the perspective? I don't know. Is this interesting? Like, I know for me, I personally pay coaches every single year. Same. And I, I want them to be completely outside of my life, completely objective, so they can see and help me see the things that I don't even know exist within me. And yeah. it's like giving me this, this edge. So it's just fascinating that he would huh. be at the height of where he is and, and not, and maybe he does, and maybe I just don't see it, but it, it just seems like he doesn't have that outside objective person yeah. to, to help him. It's just fascinating. I mean, and there's another example of that in the UFC as well, which is Tony Ferguson. Tony yes. Ferguson just put together his own camp after his or before his last fight with Justin Gaethje. Yep. He lost that fight. Granted, I mean, God, he took a beating and he hung in there until the very end. I don't know how you do that. Me neither. Um, and then obviously losing to Charles Oliveira. Uh, you know, maybe the the this is we're talking like between the two of those fighters, we're talking like four losses in the last five yep. fights for yep. both of them. Maybe it's, it's not the strategy. Like maybe the old tried and true method of, you know, having a team an established team and doing yeah, that. Dude. You know? And dude, you can throw Mike Perry in the mix too. He, yeah. he, he did his own cornering. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't turn out too well for him either. His girlfriend was, was his corner person who does not have experience. In fighting. I mean, he didn't either. So, you know, he was just a brawler who came in and he did some some pretty crazy things considering his lack of experience. But, yeah, it didn't really didn't pay off for him last time. What do you think about the Usman fight this weekend? Uh, there's a lot of indications that Gilbert Burns has his number. Uh, and and I think it comes in the form of a submission because uh, Usman is not a submission fighter. He's a great wrestler. He's a great striker. He can do a lot. And I think he's one of the great welterweight champions, but I think Gilbert Burns can beat him. And mm. I think his camp even said when Usman left, they said, we have the champion here. We're going to get the champion back and pointed to Gilbert Burns and he's the guy. So I think he can beat him. I'll actually, I'll be rooting for, for Gilbert Burns. Cause I think his time is here. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. yeah I can't wait to see you? what's going to happen, man. I don't know. Um, I think Kamara dude has a good mental game. I think his work ethic and his grind is some of the best. Mm -hmm. And so it's just going to, I think it's going to be dependent upon if, if Gilbert can do his thing, super amazing fighter, super high skill sets, but the pace that I think Kamara can go to, and he oh. totally demonstrated that with Colby, you know, no, in, in round five, like going down deep. And, and I don't know. I just think that's a special 
human quality that not everybody has. It's just something I think maybe this is born into your blood or, or something to yeah. dig deep, you know? Yeah. I think if it goes past the second or third round, I think Kamaru's got it. I'm, you know, not that, that Gilbert doesn't have the cardio or the aggression, but like if he co- goes out in those first couple rounds and, you know, he's got absolute crazy power in those punches you know, he's been, he's been, he has some pretty crazy knockouts, but if he goes out hard and he threatens that hard and he takes Camaro down and goes for the submission, I think he gets it. But beyond that, I think late rounds, it's, it's all Usman, no doubt. Nice. I'm going to shift gears on us and come back to like your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah. Um, what have been some of like the biggest mistakes that you've, you feel like you've made along the way? I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, I feel like we all have, right. But I think one thing for me was ignoring what the market was telling me. Like, I think if there was one overarching theme of my entrepreneurial career, it has been to pay attention to the market because I think we, I love the advice to like, do what you're passionate about, but I also think it has to come with a caveat. And that's as long as you can sustain doing that. And as long as the market is telling you, that's what they want. Because for me, I, I aggressively went after uh, the, the trailer voiceover world. And a lot of people don't know like you never really think about it, right? You never think of the guy that goes ready PG-13 in theaters Friday. You never think about that. But it's a, it is a small, teeny tiny subset of the voiceover world. I mean, there are, I mean, hundreds of thousands of voice actors out there now. You know, one of the one of the biggest casting websites, I think they said they have 800,000 voice actors. Wow. There's so many voice actors out there. And there's probably 20 that are working uh, consistently in movie trailers. And, but I wanted it. I was having success in promo. I was the voice of a bunch of shows on the CW. I was the, I'm the still the voice of the more, you know, on NBC, like I do a lot of promo and they're similar, right? It's similar kind of, it's a similar style, but movie trailer is so specific, but I wanted it really, really bad. I'm really passionate about movies and I love movie trailers. I watch movie trailer YouTube channels all the time. So like, I wanted that. So I worked with the best coach in the business, a guy who directs movie trailers. I spent a lot of money doing that. I got a great demo done uh, by also one of the best in the business and really, really pursued it. And after probably two to three years of hard pursuit of training, I had booked one trailer for a Telltale Games video game, uh, Batman, The Enemy Within, which is a great game, but that's not enough. To, to spend hours and hours and hours and hours. And I mean, I had, I had done what's called scratch reading. So basically when the trailer companies that produce the trailers are pitching the, the studio, what they do is they'll put a, a scratch voice on there. They're just, you know, it's usually intended to be a professional voice. It's not just, they don't just go, you know, in theaters Friday, they get somebody professional to do it. They do it for free but they put that on the trailer and then they pitch it to the studio. Mm -hmm. And if the studio then hires them, sometimes they will hire the person who did the scratch read, but not always. And that's how a lot of people that aren't already working in movie trailers get into it. Anyway. So with that backstory into it, I put all of that time and effort into it and it just wasn't there. I don't have a really deep voice. You know, I'm sort of right in the middle, a little, little low end, but I have a young sounding voice. And most male movie trailer voices are deep and you can't simulate that. 
you can make this sound like this. And it's almost there, but it's not quite. Because the guys that really do it, this that's just where they live. And so for me, it's simulated, right? Yeah. So I finally was like, okay, this is not working for me. Where am I getting most of my work? And when I was able to look at it that way and say like, am I still passionate about this? Do I still love doing this? If it's not in movie trailers, the answer was yes. And funny enough, this is really interesting. One of the guys that I was coaching with is a big movie trailer voice guy. He did like the Trolls movies. Uh, his name's Ben Patrick Johnson. Just has been doing it for a long, long time. And he he goes one day, he was like, um, have you ever done audiobooks? And I was like, yes, I did one in the first six months of my career. It ended up being an 800 page book about investing. And it was really, really, really hard, really challenging. I didn't get paid enough for it because I didn't know what I was doing and I hated it. So I never want to do it again. And he was like, you should give it another shot. Just try it. Just see what happens. So I went to ACX, which is Audible's platform where it, they connect writers with narrators. And I auditioned for a book. I got the first one I auditioned for. I got two chapters into it and I was like, I love this. Mm. This, is, this is what I've been looking for. I'm acting all day long instead of auditioning, 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 a little bit of acting, auditioning, which auditioning is acting, but like you're constantly switching. In audiobooks, you're every character, you're the narrator, you have to tell the whole story, you have to understand the story, you have to emotionally buy in. So I did that, I started auditioning for books and that sort of recognizing that big mistake of like not following the market led me to go, all right, let's try this audiobooks thing. And from there, I had an absolutely meteoric rise in audiobooks. I had done 25 audiobooks in my first six months, wow. which is really rare. It's really, really rare. And it, it's not kind of tooting my own horn. It's just that the market was looking for whatever I had. They were looking for somebody that maybe didn't read the way necessarily an audiobook needs to be read. And I just read it from the heart and it, it went from there. And then I networked and, you know, now audiobooks is my primary business by far. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. How did you, how did you build the business? Was it this through relationships or did you do like direct response marketing or was it, yeah. How did you build the niche? Yeah. It's, it's um, another thing I love about audiobooks is how different it is from other voiceover, other voiceover. It's such a hustle. It's hardcore hustle. And, as much as I have enjoyed the hustle and been successful with the hustle, I never loved that part of things. In audiobooks, it's, it is relationships, it's networking, it's building, building your brand and your brand speaks for itself a lot of the time. So at first I was auditioning for books on ACX and, you know, they would, you know, work with me there. And sometimes authors would refer you to other authors and that kind of networking. But then um, one of my coaches said, Hey, you've got to go to, an event. There's this big event that you need to go to. And it's in New York City, which I'm in Syracuse, New York. So it's five hours, no big deal, one hour flight. So I flew, I went to that event and I ended up meeting all these audiobook producers and, and all the publishers. And, you know, a bunch of them were like, wow, we're really, we like your sound. We like, you know, we like you, who you are. Um, we'll toss you a book. And they started tossing me books. And from there, it was like more and more and more and more. And so now, about 80% of my work is through publishers and producers. And then about 20% is for independent authors who I've built relationships with. Um, but it's interesting because as much as my work is mostly publishers and producers now, um, there's still a huge part of that that happens because of my connection to the listeners. 
right? Like there's, I do a lot of romance. Um, I, I also enjoy romance. I'm like one of the few men on the planet that loves romance books. So I also narrate a lot of romance. And yes, a lot of it is exactly what you imagine when you hear romance books, right? And, but the community around romance books and romance audiobooks is relatively large and insanely passionate. Like they love their books. They're proud that they love their books. They love their community. They buy every single thing that comes out that is in, you know, something that they inter they're interested in and they worship narrators. Mm. They adore narrators. Now, a lot of, that's not true in a lot of genres of audiobooks, you know, and, and there are, there are obviously your cult favorites, but in general, most people could never name their favorite narrators. Um, maybe like their top one or two, you know, if you've got like a Ray Porter or somebody that you just really, really love, the, you know, that kind of thing. But for the most part, most of your books, you wouldn't be able to name them. In romance, they can name all their favorite narrators. And if you ask them, hey, who would you suggest for my book? They'll give you a list of 100 people. They just love it. So seeing that and knowing I myself am also a fan, I went crazy in the Facebook groups. I posted live videos of me in my booth narrating the books that I was working on. I did Q&As as much as I could. Um, I started a podcast recently with another narrator who was also my best friend, and we started answering questions about love, sex, and romance on this podcast under the understanding that we're not experts, we're just romance audiobook narrators. And that gained its own cult following. So it's like a lot of this like organic brand building marketing has just made it now so that I'm booked out really far in the future. I've got a lot of stability. I've built a name for myself in like two years of narrating audiobooks. And a, a lot of it was luck and timing. And then I'll, I'll say a lot of it was also just working my butt off to mm -hmm. do it. So good, man. Dude, I, I didn't know this about you. So it's so it's super fascinating. How did you keep your like, I'll call it your ego in check. The one of the part of you that wanted to do the movie trailers and you pursued it for, I think you said two or three years, yeah. it not working. How did you let that baby die to give way for following the market? It was hard. I think part of it was I looked at the amount of money that I'd spent trying to get there and said, okay, it's not that this was wasted. I had this experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself, but I don't know that I've still necessarily let go of it. I mean, I still have my trailer demo out there. I still, you know, I don't coach for it anymore. My agent knows that I want to do it, but nothing really comes across. So, but I think it was mostly just saying, okay, I have a family to support and this is something I'm also really passionate about. And so, hey, I didn't get to live that that exciting dream that I wanted to live. And that's okay. I mean, I made it so far with the band in those days. And, you know, I wasn't rock star status. I wasn't paying the bills, you know, from the band, even though I was on the road eight months out of the year. But I got far enough, right? I got to taste it. I got to enjoy it. And that was that experience that I now have to move on from. And now I'm doing this and I'm doing another thing I'm really excited about. I think if it came to the point where I couldn't do stuff that I loved anymore, it would be way harder to let go of any of it mm -hmm. because I got to, it's not like, I don't feel like I dropped levels from like, I was really excited about movie trailer to like, ah, audiobooks are okay. It's like, I was really excited about movie trailers and I'm really, really excited about audiobooks. So it's sort of like a lateral move. And I was think that's because you wanted an experience of acting, like in the trailer world, you're acting in the audiobook world, you're acting. So you're still experiencing what you wanted to experience. It's just in a different vein than you originally anticipated. 
yeah, I had to take those skills that I had developed and transfer them over and still be excited. And I, I mean, I did that before in the marketing world. I mean, when I joined lead pages, I was there to host a podcast and having experience in sales before that, cause I did a ton of sales before that and also presenting and talking and speaking on stages and um, the podcast itself and having the ability to kind of educate people lended to the point where Clay got sick and couldn't do a webinar. And he's like, Hey Tim, you're going to do this webinar. And then all of a sudden I was the webinar guy, not the podcast guy, even though I did the podcast, I was the webinar guy and I shifted and it was like, Hey, I love doing webinars as much as I love doing the podcast. And then I, when I left there, I had my own webinar company and that's what I was doing. It was just, just these shifts that when you take the skills that you have and you can move them over to something else, even if that other thing sort of died or went to the wayside, it's like, okay, I took what I learned there and I moved it over here and it made this other thing that much more successful. How, how does somebody pay attention to the market? So my story around that is there's, there's certain people, you're one of them, who have just an inapt gift to, to seeing the market. And then there's other people who are more just like masters of their craft and yeah. it's not that they can't see the market. It just doesn't come natural. I think it comes natural. My story is, is it comes natural for some and not for others. And it could just be a bullshit story. So how does somebody start learning to just pay attention to the market? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you there. I do think I do think it comes a little more naturally. But part of it for me was like, who's opening their wallets? Mm. You know, in in acting, it's really easy to find out if it's working. Because if people aren't casting you, it's not working. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not good and it doesn't mean that it can't work. But especially when it comes to like movie trailers, that's so easy to look at and say, it's already a really small crowd that I'm trying to break into. So I'm trying to be, I'm trying to compete against Conor McGregor in the UFC, right? And so although it's possible to get there, sure, it's limited. So- that you know, looking at that and saying, okay, so that's not working out. I can see that that's not working out. So I'm going to try this other thing. And when I tried that other thing and it hit relatively quickly, I think that helped for me. That made it easier because I could see well, somebody just cast me on my first audition. That doesn't usually happen. And then I got cast from a referral from that author and then these other auditions. So for me, it's like, is, are people opening, if it comes to your business, are people opening their wallets? Are you putting your message out there and it's being received with open arms? Are people responding to it? Um, that's the big thing for me because I think if you don't look at what actions are people taking, it would be easy to see excitement and enthusiasm as enough, but it's not always enough. Um, what I mean by that is I got a lot of excitement and enthusiasm from people in the industry that weren't in a casting position about my work. Like they would hear my trailer and go, holy crap, you're really good at this. And you have something unique that the market doesn't have, you know, keep pushing this. You're going to pursue this. Great. So then I would pursue it. And yet nobody was buying, right? They weren't casting me. They weren't even giving me a shot. I did one scratch read. So this continues on, this continues on. Whereas in audiobooks, it was, it was like, people were going, oh my God, I really like your sound. Hey, I know this author. And then that author was like, yep, I like your sound, let's go. And so for me, it's like, are you seeing that action that is relevant, that actually is going to move your career or your business forward? And if you're not, 
all the excitement is great. And maybe it gives you the idea that there's like a, um, you know, like a little bit of flame there, but if you want the roaring fire, you got to go a little bit further. Mm. And if it doesn't ever kind of build to that roaring fire and it feels like you're just fighting upstream the whole time, that I think is where it says it's time to time to switch gears. So good. So good. Dude, that's hard, man. It's a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> like it really is to it's be tough. like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to kill this thing that I spent three years on and go down this other thing. Maybe it pays off. And if it doesn't, I'm going to keep pivoting, keep pivoting until it pays off it's hard. You know, I even, you know, coming back to Dustin Poirier, he talks about like how it's paid in full. He's been fighting in the UFC for what, 10 years, nine years yeah, you know, to be able to finally, you know, make his hit, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Fighting Connor. Fights, I think. Yeah. A lot of fights. Exactly. And this is fascinating how I, I guess you could, nah, I'm trying to like, just think if he pivoted, cause I mean, he did move up from 145 to 155. So maybe that's yeah. a, that's a, a pivot. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, it's interesting, but it seems like he's just kind of just been the grinder. That's like, it is done. It's only a matter of time. I'm going to pursue this one path until it's complete. And it, it's worked out for him. It's just been a really long time of grinding away. Yeah. And that's the other thing is I think sometimes it comes down to how hard and how long are you willing to work? So good. Because I think for me, I could have, I could have continued on that path. You know, three years sounds like a really long time for somebody who wants to get into something in like three years of having one booking where I made like $880. Like that's a long time. And I invested a lot more than $880 in learning to do that. But I think, you know, like the, the people that I know that have been doing movie trailers successfully, a lot of them were at it for 10 years before they got their break. And so it's really possible that eventually I could get there. But for me, my tolerance for being willing to continue to do that fight was not enough. I noticed like in the music game, I don't don't know if you noticed this when you're in the music game, but it seemed like the, the artists who were consistent for at least seven years, it took seven years before they got their break, before they started getting into the record label level type of quote unquote success. It doesn't mean that they're paying their bills. It was just like they've yeah. upgraded. And it is just something I saw when we performed. Ours was kind of that seven year hockey stick kind of growth. Uh, yeah. Luminate was another band we toured with. Did you see that as well? Like it was like a seven year kind of grind before it kind of popped. Now, again, you had to be great. Like you had to have good music. You had to be a good performer. So you, you couldn't be shit. But if you were actually good and had talent, it was kind of like the seven-year grind before the doors of opportunity opened up. Did you see the same thing? I would definitely, yeah, I would agree. And I mean, that's we got signed, I think, after five years. Hmm. And that was when, you know, we did Warp Tour. That was when, that was after we had already done TRL. Like, we had already done good things and still the labels weren't biting. So yeah, I think that was about it. And then things started to pick up. But the unfortunate thing is there's there are some areas in the music business, which again is a limiter, where your age is a factor. Yeah. Like yeah. age was a factor for us. We were early 20s, mid-20s. And the label was like, you guys are actually already too old, but we're gonna give you a shot because we see how hard you work. So I think that's like another thing that's weird to recognize is sometimes, depending on the industry you're in, there are other limiting factors. I mean, you're not gonna compete in the UFC if you're 50. Totally. So you can go if you if you dream if you're 50 years old and you dream of fighting you're going to do it for fun and that's great there's nothing wrong with that you know you're probably not going to be a pop star in your 30s if you're not already one we were in our mid 20s and we were told you're probably not going to be successful because the kind of music you play 
they want 18 and 19 year old kids. And Mm -hmm. it just was what it was, but we accepted that and still, you know, still got to do what we loved. We just, were never going to be, you know, uh, you know, on the radio airwaves, just killing it, which is fine. Now, did you have to do any like inner work uh, to get to where you're at today? I mean, all the time, all the time. You know, I, I, uh, I I saw a therapist pretty regularly to work out a lot of the stuff. Cause I think a lot of the times we get really caught up on business. We're going to, so I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. So I need to learn business skills. I need to do life coaching around those kind of things. And I think they're all really good things, but also a lot of the stuff, the stuff that holds us back, I think is just the stuff we've dealt with in our lives, the psychological shit that we hold in from a lifetime of experiences, good and bad. So yeah, working with a therapist and kind of working through that stuff and working through the stuff I was going through in my life, that definitely helped. And then yeah, figuring out, you know, how do I learn to let go of stuff like that? How do I learn to let go of, of the trailer stuff that just didn't work out for me? How do I let go of the music career, even though I was the one to kind of shut it down, but to accept the fact that it, it, it was where it was going to be and it wasn't going any higher. So I could keep grinding or I could, you know, move on. So yeah, for sure. For sure. What was your biggest breakthrough with your therapist, if you don't mind sharing? I don't know if it was one big breakthrough, but I think it was just a series of small breaking things down. I think a lot of the time I had the perception, or for a long time, I mean, I had the perception that I was going to work with a therapist and there was going to be this big aha moment. And it was going to like, oh, here's the source of all of my shit. <laughs> like, this is this is why I struggle with X, Y, and Z. But for the most part, it was, um, there's... Um, one of my favorite musicians of all time is named Owen. And if you ever get the chance, check him out on Spotify, Owen. He's got a line in a song that's like, um, I'm in therapy, she's in therapy. It seems that the answers to all my questions, or the answers to all my questions are uh, just questions for next week's session. And I, I love that line because that's really what I found therapy to be. It was just a series of questions that I had to wrap my head around. So I I don't think it was ever one thing. It was more breaking a lot of stuff down, breaking through a lot of walls to get to the next wall. So I could break that one down and slowly kind of figure out who I was and what I wanted out of life. So good, man. Who did you discover you were? This, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever the hell I am now and what I am now will be different from what I am in in a year and five years and 10 years. Um, I also think one of the things that I have struggled with is, is learning to accept that people change over time and we're still us at our core, but over time, over the years, we are interested in different things. Our priorities shift, our deepest desires shift. The things that used to matter a lot don't matter anymore and vice versa. And I know this is like, a lot of us probably already know this stuff because if you think about who you are when you're in high school versus who you are when you have a family, like that's dramatically different. But I even think there's more subtle things than that that shift over time. And we learn about things that we never knew before. I mean, think about the fact that so many people are now learning that about things like systemic racism, which is something that for a lot of people, myself included, racism was always thought of as here is a white person who hates a black person and not knowing that it's so much deeper than that. And when we learn stuff like that, for example, that changes who we are as people because it opens our eyes to a lot of things that we didn't recognize before. And it can also help us to kind of look inward 
and see who we are and where our kind of things that have built us up from children and the things that stuck with us, things about like, for example, religion, things about, you know, um, food dogmas that we end up buying into, like whatever these things are, and to open our eyes and say, okay, is is this really something that matters to me? Or is it because I've just, it's been ingrained into me for five years, 10 years or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, that's really helpful. And that, I think that's been the biggest thing is who I am now is whatever the hell you see now and who I'll be in five years will be dramatically different. So good, man. I love it. One of my greatest like spiritual philosophies that I've studied is just like, I am. So it's like, well, who are you? It's like, well, I am. And it's going to change moment by moment by moment by moment. And when we can come home to that, how much freedom uh, we actually experience and I've, I've experienced there's a difference between like intellectually knowing it and like feeling it like within your heart, within your soul. And when like it's intellectually known, but when it's fully understood in your heart, it's, it's very different. Have you experienced the similar thing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a conversation that uh, we have a lot when we think about things like, you know, I've had a lot of friends go through divorces recently. You know, my, my wife and I recently broke up um, and one of those things is like, you know, when you're thinking about things like, uh, you know, I honestly, I lost track of my, where I was going with that. No, no problems. No problems. Can you bring so, me back? What was yeah, that? Yeah. We're talking, so we're talking about like, I am, and there's a difference between intellectually knowing right. it and then like being able to really fully embody it. And I was just wondering right. if you've, you've experienced something similar. Yeah. 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 So talking about things like when somebody sees that their ex has uh, a new partner and intellectually knowing that like maybe it seems like their their you know their ex is being all the things that they never were with them with their new partner mm -hmm. intellectually knowing they're not really they're the same person they're probably bringing a lot of those same negative behaviors or they're hidden just like maybe they were with you when they were with you right intellectually knowing that and really internalizing it is different because we can still feel jealousy, even though we know maybe we don't want to be with that person anymore. Yeah. And yeah, like having those experiences, 100%. I think that's, that's huge. It, it just like when it comes to the trailer stuff, I can intellectually know I've struggled for years and years and years to make it work. And then that trailer audition comes from my agent and I'm like, Oh my God, drop everything, make this work, even though I know, but it's like, still, I haven't, you know, sometimes I feel like I haven't fully brought it internal. Yeah. 100%. So nice. I've only done therapy once. I did EMDR therapy after my daughter was born. Like, I don't know the birth of my daughter was like super fucking traumatic. I talked about it openly on podcasts. I think episode number five or something like it, it like sent me to the, like the pit of apathy where I wanted to blow my head off in the garage. Like I didn't care about life. I didn't care about my career. It was just this weird traumatic thing that triggered like some deep shit within me. And what I found in therapy and it helped, but I felt it was so slow. <laughs> I remember telling the yeah. therapist, I was like, Hey, can I just like pay you for three or four days? Like, I'll just come live with you for four days. Can we just go to the fucking root of this thing <laughs> and solve yeah. this? Because this is taking forever. I'm not used to it taking so long. And she's like, well, therapy, you know, we ask questions, it's pulling layer by layer. I'm like, just rip it off. Come on, let's go. I'm an entrepreneur. Let's go fast. Yeah. So I it's an interesting experience between how, how fast I'm used to going and the capacity that I have to go deep really quickly and find healing and working with some really amazing transformational coaches. And then the therapy side, 
no right or wrong. I'm not, I'm not even bashing the therapy sure. site at all. It was just such a distinct experience for me, how one was so much slower. And she was like, well, the slow part helps some people because it gives them time to really think and process it. <laughs> and I was like, I get that. I was like, but I process really fast. <laughs> so I was like, how can we speed this up? That was my experience with therapy. I would bet money entrepreneurs struggle the most with therapy, with traditional psychotherapy, like for sure, because we are used to, there's a problem, let's fix it, Yeah. right? That's what we do. We come up with solutions to problems. And so when, when you realize therapy is just a long series of slowly working through a problem that may not be something that's fixed, but that you learn to accept, deal with, live with, work around slowly kind of, uh, you know, excise, I think it can be really hard. It was really hard for me too. I am also a work it through. I mean, when somebody and I are having a disagreement, if we're, you know, butting heads or something, I'm like, no, work through, let's talk through this right now. And there's a lot of people in the world that are just, no, let me go off and be by myself and let me, and we'll be fine. And we can talk through it later. So it's the same thing with therapy. I'm with you. I'm the same way. It was It was really hard. And I think part of the work of a good therapist is also getting you through therapy, getting you ready for therapy, which that also sucks because you're like, I'm paying you to help me be ready so that when I pay you, I'm getting the most out of it. It's hard. Yeah, yeah. I I even thought about going back to school uh, to to do psychotherapy and all that because I find it so fascinating. Yeah. But then I started learning that if you have a license, then you have these boxes that you have to stay legally in. Yes. I'm like, I don't do boxes. I'm not going to yeah. get on the psychotherapy route. <laughs> yeah. That is, that's very, uh, very, very true. Cause I remember asking my therapist was like, could we do this? Like, can't you just take me to the pit of apathy? Well, legally I can't. I'm like, okay, what about psilocybin? Uh, I've heard <laughs> that Carrie. Can we do psilocybin? Like, she's like, well, I can't really. So it's just really interesting how she knew she's like, that would work. This would work, but legally I can't, I have to stay within these confines. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, that's why I choose to be a coach and not a therapist. Yeah. And I think there's something to that as well, right? Like you found there was something that that drew you in. It was something you were interested in maybe being a part of. And then you found that there are constraints on that. And that's the same thing in a lot of areas. Like um, I was going to start a YouTube channel related to uh, the romance work that I do, but also like it was sort of going to be like a, a romance narrator reviews romance work. And it was it was called The Book Boyfriend because I was the guy who loved romance, again, in a world of a lot of guys don't like romance books. And I was going to start that, but I had a few people in the industry that were like, hey, that's probably not a great idea because you're in the industry, you're a narrator and you're working for authors and you're now reviewing authors work. And it's going to create some weird conflicts uh, that you don't want to be a part of. And it was like, okay, something to consider is that this is a path that kind of limits things. And the same thing in other areas like um, promo voice actors or commercial voice actors or political ad voice actors have to be careful. They cannot, like, I'm pretty vocal about a lot of stuff that I care about. I post about it. I'm not like, I don't try to start fights, but I mean, I know who I am and I'm loud about it. And um, that's a problem in some areas of voiceover. That's a problem in some areas of life in general. But I think, you know, deciding where are you okay with some limits is, uh, is good. And you figured that out. And I think that's, that's a pretty big, you know, that's a, a big realization. For sure, man. Now, are you still vegan? 
I am. Yeah. It's been 16 years now. So to open up a can of political worms, because this would be fun <laughs> to talk about, what do you think about uh, the head dude of Monsanto coming to be the, the, the dude for the USDA? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard much about it. I haven't read much into it. Um, obviously not a big fan of Monsanto. Sure. And, uh, I also don't expect anybody, anybody to be um, perfect. I, I expect there to be a lot of politics in politics. Totally. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people give hero worship to politicians that is very much not deserved i don't think any politician should be a hero i don't think they should be you know i think they should be looked to as somebody that we're looking for help from but boy the hero worship i think gets us in trouble and so good, uh, man why did you go choose to go vegan i was a young guy and i had a lot of friends that were vegan that's part of it right the circle that i was with but um primarily they had showed me um, back then, a lot of the documentaries were sort of like really crappily done. Like somebody literally took a camcorder into a slaughterhouse and took footage of it and then like talked about it. But I watched uh, I watched some of those. A couple of friends had shown them to me and they were like, you know, understand that this is what happens for you to eat your meat or your eggs or your cheese or whatever. And I thought about it a lot and I was like, okay, well, knowing that, knowing that that's a problem, I wonder if it's something I could do. And I just don't know if it's something I could do. So uh, the six month, uh, the, the middle of summer, rather, I was like, I'm going to go vegetarian for a week. Like, what the hell? Might as well try it. Uh, and like day two, I was like, this is easy. The, the meat replacers are good enough. Right. Or whatever. Six months later, it's the day before Thanksgiving. And I'm like, I'm going to try vegan for a week and just see how it goes starting on Thanksgiving. If I can be vegan on Thanksgiving, I can be vegan any day of the year because <laughs> I loved me some turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy stuff and all. Oh my God. So I did it. And then on Thanksgiving, I made it to the end of the day and I was like, I'm vegan. And I've had my stumbles along the way. I think everybody does. Uh, I've had moments where I've been like, am I vegan because I care about the animals or am I vegan just because I'm vegan? And I've sort of explored that. And it brought me back to, yeah, I care about the animals. That's why that's why I do this. You know, it's not for health. Uh, it is a little bit for the environment, but most of all, it's just because it's in line with my morality. Awesome. Does you, do you feel good? Like your body feels good? Yeah, I feel better than I ever have, but I don't necessarily attribute that to veganism because I've been vegan for so long mm. that, you know, the last time I wasn't vegan, I was like 18. And so when you're 18, you feel pretty damn good when you're, when you're 36. <laughs> ah, some stuff's already breaking down. Um, but I do feel, I feel great. I, you know, three years ago, I got into working out pretty hardcore and um, started lifting weights and was preparing for a bodybuilding competition. And got really, really into fitness and nutrition. And and now I'm very not particular about what I eat, but I eat in a specific way. So yeah, I feel good. I feel awesome. good. I get all the protein and all that shit that I need. You still doing uh, weightlifting with gyms being closed and shit? Because I know you're in New York, like, you know, nothing's open. Yeah. I built, I built a little miniature gym at home nice. um, with a lot of uh, <laughs> thrown together shit. But uh, yeah, it's great. And I've gotten into kickboxing. So kickboxing is my cardio now. And um, you know, I've got some adjustable weights and a lot of bands and just do what I can. And weirdly enough, I've gotten better results since quarantine than I did when I was going to the gym six days a week. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, dude, I started using this thing called the X3 bar. So it's a little bitty yeah. barbell. So, you know, of the X3. Oh, cool. yeah. So I've been doing it for, I, I did a 90 day stint uh, at the end of last year of end of 2020. And then I took a, a month off and now I've been on it. And so my fitness goal for this year is 12 months, four workouts a, a week, 
for 12 right. months, 12 month commitment. But yeah. dude, X3 is legit, dude. Like it's, it's, it's easy. Like 12 minutes, 15 minutes, I'm done with my workout. My body feels good. My muscles are building slowly. Fat's burning, you know, slowly. I do intermittent fasting most days, not every day. Like today I didn't, my wife wanted to make his breakfast. So we had some, some good breakfast together, but most days I intermittent fast. And I've really enjoyed, man. I've really enjoyed the X3. And my hope is, is keep on doing it and make a lifestyle thing in my bones and ligaments and everything as I age uh, are a lot more strong. <laughs> so I have a more active lifestyle, even into my 70s or 80s. Yeah, that's that's about where I'm at, too. It's interesting. Um, so I was working with a coach before my bodybuilding uh, competition that I didn't end up doing. First off, it, ha- it was going to be in the middle of COVID. And second off, I decided I wasn't I didn't want to go there because I care more about my health. And, and I don't think you can be particularly healthy while competing. Um, but it's, it's interesting because one thing that I was talking to my coach about was like, okay, if I'm not going to compete and I don't aspire to some certain level of, you know, aesthetic appearance, you know, why am I killing myself? And he was like, why are you? And I was like, well, I want to, I want to look good and feel good and be strong and you know, whatever. And now I'm a single man. So it's like, you know, got to impress the ladies. Right. Um, And, you know, I'm 36 and I want to make sure I'm healthy and I want to be around for my kids when they're old. And uh, he was just like, well, do you think you have to do what you're doing now to get there? And I was like, "Uh, I don't know. This is all I've done for years. Right. And he was like, let me tell you, he's a little younger than me, but not much. He was just like, I have cut back the number of workouts that I do. I don't work out seven days a week anymore. He's like, I work out four days a week. And he looks like Batman's suit, you know, like he's jacked and huge and, you know, all that stuff. And so um, I was like, well, that's interesting. And I told him I wanted to do more focus on kickboxing. I wanted to increase my performance there and really hone in on that because I'm enjoying it. He was like, what if you lifted weights two days a week, you did full body splits two days a week, and then you dedicated whatever other workout days you wanted to kickboxing. And doing that, I have found that I've gained muscle, I've lost fat, and I feel amazing. So it's been a a real emotional and like mental struggle to limit the amount of days I've lifted weights, knowing what a transformation I made from lifting weights. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's weird. The the changes that we have to make sometimes and and how tied to it we can get. Yeah. A good friend of mine here in Dallas, his name's Guy Mesger. He's like one of the former UFC world champions. He runs a gym in, in, in Dallas and he used to train there. Did boxing with him for like six months he always talked about like training functionally, like rather than just like, you know, training to bulk up. He he was a big, you know, advocate of like whatever training you do, you want it to translate into practical applicability. So he is, you know, only thing he would weight lift is kettlebell swings. <laughs> and then everything else was just kinesthetics and punching the bag, kicking the bag. And, right. you know, guys, 53, 54 now. And I mean, looks amazing. And he doesn't, he doesn't touch any weights, just, just boxing training and kinesthetics. That's it. Or calisthenics, however you say the word. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And in, in kickboxing, dude, throwing kicks for cardio is no joke. I know I took one kickbox classing or kickbox kickbox class and dude, it kicked my ass. Those kicks, dude, those kicks are, they take so much energy, so much energy. It's awesome. I know I've never been a cardio guy. I have never liked cardio. I've never liked running or any of that kind of stuff really pushed back against it. I never did a minute of cardio when I was training for my bodybuilding show. I just dieted that hard. Uh, can't do that anymore. <laughs> but, but now like, this is something that's cardio that I love. 
I love it. It's so much fun. It's so interesting and it is functional. I've never been able to defend myself. I'm, I'm not a big guy sure. and even now being a little bigger and having a little more muscle, I've never been able to defend myself. I try to avoid being in situations where that matters. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting now. It's like, I, I have this cardio thing that I'm enjoying and it's become one of the things where if somebody's like, Hey, hi, you lost a ton of weight. You got in great shape. Like, how do you, how did you do it? And I was like, I found the thing that I liked. It's like, I stopped doing shit. I didn't like, because you can't stick with it. You're not going to do it long-term. So if you want to lose weight and you go do cardio that you're miserable about every day, you might be able to do it for two months, but then what happens when you never want to do it again? Yeah, dude. So good, man. And just kind of landing this plane here. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some wisdom, to help you get results faster, what would you tell them? I'd say to chill out. Mm. Uh, I was so wound up and so like, I have to do this. I have to, whatever this is at the moment, like I have to do this. If I don't do this, I'm never going to be happy in my life. It's like, just chill out. You know, if, if this doesn't work out, there's another thing. You're, you're a capable human being. You have, you're a, a human of multiple passions. You can be interested in more than one thing. And a lot of the time I found that when I put all my eggs into my passion and it became the career, I didn't love it anymore. And so just chill out, you know, go with the flow a little bit more. So good, man. If people want to hire you to do their podcast intro, audio book, where can they learn about you, your company, all that good stuff? Yeah, I'm at thevoiceoftimpage.com and everything there, every link you could want is there. Awesome. Brother, thank you so much for carving out time and being here. Appreciate you, homie. Thanks for having me, man. Well, there you have it, my friend, Tim Page, the amazing Tim Page himself here on the show. I just love that guy. I really do. I first met him back in 2015 um, here at in Dallas at Podcast Movement. And for whatever reason, like when we met, man, we just like clicked. It was like we'd just been like long life friends. Like we'd known each other forever. And it's amazing to me how many former professional musicians uh, are really in this game of digital marketing. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because it's a way for creative people to still be creative and be paid very well for the knowledge of creativity and, and stuff in the game of marketing. Now, I have personally hired Tim. I've worked with this team and I can tell you personally, uh, they're amazing and they live up to Tim's mission. So if you need some voice work done, I can't recommend Tim and his team enough. I mean, they're, they're really fantastic, wonderful people. And I really hope this episode inspired and motivated you to keep creating uh, your big vision. Like I know that you have to pivot a few times, but if you'll stick with it, like it's all going to work out in the end, uh, usually <laughs> a lot better than you anticipated uh, at the beginning. So that's all I have for this episode of the Anthony China Mix podcast. If you know someone who needs to hear this episode, send it over to the DM, screenshot it, share it on social media, send them an email, text message, whatever you have to do to get this episode into the ear holes. And also please keep those five-star reviews coming on over uh, on from iTunes because it's really what helps get the show found by a lot more people. So that being said, I am out. Until next time, my friend. Peace. Well, that's all I've got for this episode of the Anthony John Amix podcast, but we have plenty more to help you become unstoppable in life and business. So head on over to ajamix.com for exclusive resources, information, and tools to help you break through to a new level of freedom, purpose, and success. I look forward to having you back for the next episode. Bye for now.